0: To your friends, listen as much as you can. Numbers are slightly down, which may affect the future of this podcast. So just leave it playing, even if you're not in the room. Love you. (laughs) Now sit back, relax, and enjoy whatever it is you're going to listen to.
1: Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare Short-Term Insurance Plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare Short-Term Plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: Hi guys, it's another Rahalletteper this week with the amazing Stephen Grant, recorded at the Old Market in Brighton, and we're still on the road doing Rahallettepers all the way through to December. We've got Brighton again in the fifteenth of September at the Brighton Theatre Royal. Uh, it's a fantastic venue with Simon Evans. We're at the Leicester Haymarket Theatre on the nineteenth of September, Bristol Old Vic on the twenty-second of September, Richmond Theatre on the theatre on the 20 of September with Take Face and um, to be confirmed. Then we're going to Winchester, Exeter, Newcastle, the Les Square Theatre, York, Liverpool, Oxford, Les Square Theatre, Les Square Theatre, Cambridge, Les Square Theatre, Northampton, Glasgow, Sheffield and Hull and hopefully more in 2020. If these sell well enough, we will keep doing them on the road. So if you want us to come to your town and if you want us to return to your town, please buy tickets for those shows. Some of them are nearly sold out. Some of them aren't selling as well. So just please check out and come along if you can. And uh, also... If you go to rahalastapa.co.uk, you can find out more information about this show and also become a member. Uh, If you get a membership pack, a badge, a secret code, a wallet to keep your secret code and all the other stuff in, it's amazing Uh, and it helps us to make more podcasts as well. Uh, So go to rahalastapa.co.uk or go fasterstripe.com slash badges if you want to get on board with that. But anyway, let's sit back, relax and enjoy Rahalastapa. With me, Richard Herring, and Stephen Grant. Welcome to the old market in home. Please welcome a man who has a strange sense of deja vu, which probably means that he is uh, lying in the hospice bed somewhere if you listen to the last podcast and I'm just imagine this is happening. It's Richard Herring! <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Welcome. Oh, damn, I forgot to come up with one of these. I'm going to have to ad lib one. Welcome to Richard Herring's uh, uh, (laughs) lovely, smashing, terrific podcast. Uh, But I was uh, hanging out at the Fingerprint Maze uh, in Hove Park, you know. It's hanging out there, and one of the guys there, he called it hey, So I don't know if that's gonna catch on. I looked at it, you, you didn't seem very aware of the, the fingerprint <laughs> maze. Have you seen it? It's in Hope Park. Uh, I, I looked up the TripAdvisor reviews. Uh, Skyverman Ed N, or Eden, I suppose it might be, said, It's not even a maze, and it's only a novelty. <laughs> uh, Chris said, It's a fingerprint you can walk around, anatomically incorrect that's good Uh, look we're going to crack more or less straight on Uh, I'll just give you one piece of news uh, from uh, recently in Brighton the Brighton Argus uh, a man who complained about 10 months of missed bins because he lived down a narrow street did you see this story you can't believe what's happening he's been awarded 50 pounds in compensation for that (laughs) it must have been his lucky day 50 quid he'll never have to work again (laughs) and I assume he just had 10 months of just carrying his own rubbish to the dump Let's all do that. In a 50 quid, we could have... What we do using bin men? It's ridiculous. That's the main news story that's happened. Apart from, uh, as I mentioned in the last podcast, I-360 losing £3.8 million in a year. Well done. Well done. Well done to you, Brian, with your rubbish London eye. So I go round, not up and down. So, I want to introduce my guest uh, this week. Uh, only one podcast a week, Remember. He's probably best known for his appearance on the Dan and Dusty show. That's why we're all here. <laughs> Will you please welcome Stephen Grant, ladies and gentlemen? Come in, sit down. There's a microphone and everything. There's water.
2: Canon. Fucking Dusty! Tell us I,
0: about the Dan and Dusty show. I can't
2: remember it. You said it was going
0: to be obscure. It's so obscure, I can't remember it. Was there puppets it, involved?
2: It was. It was a. Pu- it was a. Oh dear. Uh, ITV. You know when ITV want to do comedy, mm-hmm. they always think it's not enough to just do comedy. They've got to do something with it. Uh, so they decided instead of having a comedian actually as a host, they had a pair of puppets uh, called Dan and Dusty who introduced each of the acts as Puppets. And then you came on introduced by puppets. And right. It, yeah. Fucking shocking. (laughs) It was uh, was pretty poor. But anyway, um, yeah, that was that. And uh, since then, my career was whoosh. Yeah. (laughs) Genuinely, you should be pleased I'm here.
0: We are very pleased. Well, we're saying backstage, you were born and bred in Brighton, but so was your dad and And your...
2: And his dad, and his dad, and his dad, um, Stephen Grant, my dad, Roy Grant, his dad, uh, Ernest Grant, his dad, Henry Grant, his dad, dad Thomas Grant, in fact, they, he had a, um, a butcher sh- shop in James's Street in the late 1870s, that's what it's like. And the reason why I know that is my father was the chairman of the Sussex Family History Group and went back and he just said, you, just, you don't get more Brighton than me. So, right. yeah, cut me, I
0: bleed mung bees. <laughs> like, so he's one of you, unless you're not from Brighton, in which case... Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's
2: right. yeah, so, um, yeah, so I'm very Brighton.
0: Very yeah. Brighton, yeah. And have uh, you, you, ever, you ever left Brighton to go live anywhere else?
2: I, uh, briefly. Uh, yeah. I have, I've lived in surrounding Sussex villages from time to time. I was lived in Sayers Common briefly, and I lived in Henfield briefly, uh, but then I keep coming back to Brighton and home. Yeah,
0: well, it's nice. Know. And, you, you know, you are a huge celebrity in Brighton. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> by, you're the most famous man in Brighton. Oh, no, I know no. it's by virtue of the room full of people going... <laughs> now, but, uh, what the fuck is this but you've uh, made uh, well the Comedia and uh, the, the Creator yeah. Club made you very much your own
2: yes I mean I, I mean it's just, it's just numerics really I mean being a resident compare there aren't many resident compares left in comedy there used to be years and years ago um, but um, I'm a resident compare of a comedy club that plays to a thousand people a week so and, and so, it's just statistically likely if you live in Brighton and Hove that at some point you've been dragged down for a party or, or a stag deal just a night out and you've seen me there um, and the reality of it is is that a lot of people don't recognise me or Brighton's a bit too cool for school to recognise people until I speak and then they work out who I am because they've right. heard my voice because they weren't really looking they were just listening, they were just sort of staring <laughs> on their phone waiting for the ass to come on you know? so, I mean, and then they kind of like, oh yes, bloke recognise that voice I just, when he stops talking something fun happens so I... Um, <laughs> So that's that's kind of where it is. But yeah, no, I mean, over... Twi- uh, comedians get 20th... Well, the, the night I run's 20th birthday comes up in um, June of this year. And so that'll have been 20 years of doing 200 shows a year. Um, like I said, 1,000 people. Over 1,000, about 1,200 people a week. And it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling just how... Famous, I should fucking be. <laughs> I mean, so realistically, what, why are you guys not fucking paying attention? I'm, I'm out there every day bleeding. No, just I mean, waiting
0: for the act to come on. That's the. Waiting for the acts to come on. I know that's
2: that's the way it works. But no, I mean it's. Uh, I, I love it, and and it's it's kind of weird. In comedy, you're you're used to it. You'll see people go on stage and they're from a place, and what they'll do is they talk about how shit it is. And I think there's a bit of sort of Brighton. Pride going on, not literally pride, obviously, but I mean it's a, in that much as yeah, everyone turns up with feathers in their arse going, We're having a lovely day. But I um no, I mean it's there's a lot of people who are very proud of this city. They love how progressive it is, they love how forward thinking it is, and so it kind of twists the comedy slightly because you, you can't really put the boot in and you don't want to put the boot in your yeah, you know, I'm pro bright and the room full of people are pro bright and we just talk about how shit crawly is that normally works. <laughs> I mean it's works better as well. A little bit of the ribbing people of port slade, hey so close to the action, can't quite afford it. You know, I am um, <laughs> Uh, and it's just a bit of that really you know you've got to, you've got to, you've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to kick down and if you live in brighton there's loads of options <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you've been to, you, I, I, you've been to stand-up. you did edinburgh it was in first nine in the nineties right in 90-
2: 99, first time up right. to edinburgh uh, t- um doing a of a package show with a, uh, Paul Foot and Veronica McKenzie. I don't know Veronica ever done, gave up comedy about two or three years later. Paul Foot um, is still very niche, but
0: he's excellent. Yeah, um,
2: yeah. And then 2001, did my first ever show, uh, and then I did about
0: eight one-man and shows. And that first Edinburgh, were you followed by a film crew, is that right?
2: Yes, it was really odd. There was, um, was a Channel 4 show called Edinburgh or Bust, and what they wanted to do was follow uh, a, kind of a really established comedian, uh, one who was breaking through and one who was brand new, to show how Edinburgh worked. But they filmed it and went, it went out, I wouldn't say in real time, but like they would film it and then it would go out a week and a half later. Right. So what they filmed me to show what's it like for a new comic coming up to Edinburgh and no one knows who you are and you're desperately trying to get people through into your room but there's nobody there... But of course, because the programme was going on Channel 4, I was full every fucking night. So it was nothing like that as well. Like, Stephen, are you worried about no one turning up? No, because of you guys. Thanks. Um, and so every night we were full. And then, but I was obviously nowhere near good enough to play to a full room. So everyone was sort of went, oh, he's a bit shit. Yeah, watch the programme. It's about me being shit. Uh, um, so it took a little while to sort of catch up with how good, the, how many people came to see me. Um, that was I remember it. I remember it. it was that was back in the days when, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of satellite and so if you were on a terrestrial T V channel, then people would just watch you because the other four channels were shit. So yeah. I mean so we got great numbers and sort of numbers people would be mad about now. And the other two acts that were followed were Jason Byrne and Adam Bloom. Right. And what's interesting is it wasn't it was Jason Byrne was the emerging act and Adam Bloom was the established one as right. well. So Jason's huge now as well, and Adam obviously a very established act. Um, but it was they had this idea of these are the people we will follow, and then we'll follow their career and see how it goes. And I, um, yeah, I, I remember it being odd because I still had a day job as well, so they came and filmed me at my day job. But I hadn't told the people at the day job why they were filming me because <laughs> I didn't hadn't told them yet whether I could ask if I could have four weeks off work to go to Edinburgh <laughs> yet. Uh, so they sort of filmed it and They goes, "What are they doing?" And He goes, "Well, they're just sort of doing a documentary about people who've got hobbies." <laughs> uh, um, and then they're just and they said, "What do you think about Edinburgh?" And I think it's got a fabulous castle. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, and that was,
0: yeah, that was that was. An and do you think it was? I mean, do, did it help or not? Because I, I remember everyone feeling like a bit. So you know the other established acts who had been going for ten years or twenty years yes. and never been on TV, no. and then you were turning up and being filmed. Mm. And, and did you get any f- blowback from that, or was it well, okay?
2: I, I think people were kind of, you know, what comics are like.
0: I do. Kind of that's like, why I, that's why I asked the question. I
2: think they're all. I think. I think <laughs> I ingratiated myself with the comedy fraternity when they realised I wasn't anywhere near as good (laughs) as you would need to be in order to have a film crow following you. So I think, actually, it flipped from being, why does he get this leg up into the industry so quickly to kind of like, oh, actually, it might be a bit tricky when you're brand new with this level of expectation. But... um, no, I thought oh, people on the whole were were okay. Uh, they only called me a, a wanker behind my back, so that was fine. So
0: um, <laughs> they did. They yeah, did. Yeah, they did. They uh, did so... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it is. But Edinburgh's the worst times of this interview.
2: <laughs> Nineteen years of pent up frustration <laughs> <laughs> about you being in Edinburgh, watching me being followed by a film crew, going who
0: the fuck is he? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yes. Yes. Is. Yes. Right, yeah. I'm bad. sorry for everything I've ever but, done. But, but you're in Brighton now, it's my town.
0: But, but Edinburgh is where comedians are super, like paranoid as well. Even are. comedians are mad and paranoid enough as it is anyway.
2: It's Edinburgh's weird though, isn't it? Because the two things that stop comedians actually earning a decent money is that we don't work every single day. I mean, you might, but I mean, like the, the job in comic level, and we have to travel quite far to our work. Yep. In Edinburgh, the work is on our doorstep. We work every day. And we lose more money than we do at any other time of the year. <laughs> and we sit there going, well, "How the fuck's this happened?" You know. So <laughs> then we turn up, and all the rules of comedy get turned on their head. I remember going up uh, one year, and there was a was it Tony Law, Craig Campbell, and um, and Dan, Dan. Antropolsky yeah. had a, 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 a sketch show. The three of them. And the review in the, in the I think it was in something like the Herald said something like um, it was um, uh, yeah. uh... A fringe favourite Dan Antopolsky joined by newcomer Craig Campbell, right? And Craig Campbell had been going 30 years and had his own TV show in Canada and all the rest of it. And, and Dan was as going as long as me then, so that would only been three or four years. But in Edinburgh, all the rules go out the window. Everyone who's an established act, who's like a headliner else, is, if you're not anybody out in Edinburgh, then, then you arrive as a new act. And if you're someone who's really established in Edinburgh but can't work anywhere else, then you're the bell of the ball. It's really yeah. odd, you know. Watching Brendan Burns basically walk around with the crown, and then it comes to September, and everyone goes, "No, I don't want to fucking work with you." <laughs> uh, um, and that that would happen every year. There's kind of this this sort of weird flip situation where it's it's such a bubble. It's yeah. a brilliant bubble, but
0: it's a bubble. Yeah, it's true. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I remember talking to you about you. You, you kind of. You, I, I was thinking about doing a show about always coming second, and you did a you did that show. I about have a always show always called Com- Second. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. That was literally about you know the. the the logistics of, um, uh, of of what it means to come second, whether we are a winner-only society, I'm trying to be quite serious about it, looking at the psychological effects. And I was reading up um, psychological reports of people who retired from sport who'd only done the... You know, sports where the Olympics were the pinnacle, and they got a silver, and whether that makes they felt that they were successful or they were unfulfilled. And it turned out that the actual best thing to do was to come third, by the way. Because you got on the podium, but you didn't feel like you'd only just made it. Because silver gets that. So actually, the bitterest feeling is silver. Yeah. Basically, what I'm saying is, if any of you are in the Olympics in the future, and you're about to come second, hang back, come 3rd be <laughs> happy for years <laughs> afterwards. Um, but then I, did, I remember... I was. But I... I, I, I uh, explored all elements to do with second including things like the difference in, in very class driven society in Britain about between first and second class and I remember I, was, I did an experiment I sent a load of envelopes out uh, with first and second class stamps to myself to see if they would get there first. Okay. And they all got there at the same time. So it's, it's almost completely pointless. Actually, but what, as part of it, what I also did is I tried out, at the same time, to see how long it would get there. I started writing just like things like a really smudged address, where I'd write it in crayon. And in one of them, I just put a picture of me with the arrows for saying, him, into the address. <laughs> uh, and uh, what the, my favourite thing I found out was, was that uh, you could actually put, sorry, no stamp, and put no stamp on it, Uh, Put any address you want on the front, and on the back, put the sender's address as the address you want it to go to, okay? (laughs) And they would send it to that address, (laughs) saying, incorrect, insufficient postage. So if anyone wants to send a letter for free, (laughs) put any old shit on the front, put the address you want it to go on the back, and then don't put a stamp on it. (laughs) It worked! Sorry, Royal now, but you're
0: fucked. I, uh... <laughs> they, might, they might get wise to that now. It's, uh, that, the thing about the gold, the, the medals in the Olympics, because quite often what happens is people come fourth mm. and then the Russians get disqualified. Oh, later on. Yeah, later on. And then you've won a bronze medal, but you didn't get to go on the podium. That must be...
2: You see, you know, we're comics, so we're thinking you've got robbed of the podium. That's the yeah. thing. I think a lot of athletes are just really good at running. I, th- I think the bit when they walk up in front of everybody and get their medal, even though they've been working towards that they must shit themselves, right? Because that's a bit like, kind of like, oh, my God, I've got to go out in front of everybody now. Like, what am I going to do? You know, well, basically, nip down, get a medal, stand back up again. But what I love as well is that those people get given the medals at their home, don't they? Yeah. There's got to be someone from the Olympic Committee whose job it is, is to knock on people's door and go, all right, do you remember Olga? (laughs) Apparently a bloke, have a bronze. um, You know, and and they've got to go around and do that. They've got to upgrade. And, And also, let's say the gold has been done... You know, like they, they, they were a drugs cheat, which means the, the what was the bronze is now the silver. They've got to go to the silver bloke's house, <laughs> hand them a the gold and go, but can we have the silver? Because I've got to take it to that bloke over there now, who was the bronze, and then get the medal off them. So, they've got to, so they'll know, because they'll yeah. phone ahead, won't they? Is yeah. your bloke coming around right now with a silver medal for you. <laughs> Why is that then? Olga, bloke. Uh, um, and then that's, that's what happens.
0: Yeah. What have you spilt some soup on it or something?
2: <laughs> what, what have they... S- <laughs> well, they sell them. A lot of them ebay them, yeah. don't you? Have you ever typed in Olympic medal on eBay? I have. There's always someone selling them because they've fallen a hard time. Yeah. I know. And you sit there and you think, what sports don't you have a job with afterwards? And the answer is archery. <laughs> it's no fucking use. If this was the 16th century, these people would be gods, wouldn't they? <laughs> They'd be like, I don't like him. Not a problem.
0: <laughs>
2: now, it's like, what are we you going to do? Going to be a PE teacher. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Can't turn up with a medal. Run. I'm a fucking Olympic gold. You know, come and do it. Anyway, so yeah, they
0: sell them. So, but in the second show, was it also about the fact that uh, I've got this wrong? This is from a memory of a conversation with a long time ago uh, that you were up for Top Gear. You're very close to getting in the the original Top Gear. Yeah,
2: yeah, I got down to, um, I mean, this is going to really test people's memory of Top Gear if you ever did watch it. But before Richard Hammond came along, there was another guy who did about a series and a half, and he was like a, he was a used car dealer, and they wanted to get someone who was like a man of the people. And then they worked out that those people aren't very good at broadcasting. So he went, and then they wanted to replace him. So obviously they already had um, Richard Hammond and... Uh, Jeremy Clarkson, but they didn't have James May yet. So, so I got, I was part of the auditions, just, God, going back many, many years, and I got down to the last two, me and James May. I did a day's filming with Jeremy Clarkson to the cool wall and all this sort of stuff, and it was, it, that was a brief moment. I don't let myself get ahead of myself, and I just thought, my God, this is like this would be incredible. It was a life-changing job. And it was about five days after the last day of filming, I had four interviews. I had to go for absolute tests. I had to go for my history to make sure there was anything that wasn't going to bring the BBC into disrepute and stuff like that. Something they thinking, please find fucking nothing. <laughs> I, um, and then I got a phone call from Andy Wilman's, the exec producer of Top Gear. And I remember I was driving to a gig at the time and I had a friend with me in the seat. And so I had him on hands-free. So I couldn't, you know... And he said, hi, it's Andy here. And I Stephen, like, we've gone through all your tapes and we've chatted to the execs and whatever. And... Um, Look, and I'm going to say this. We think you were the best person in audition, and we thought you were absolutely brilliant uh, with Jeremy. But the problem we found was uh, you were just a bit too similar in sort of style and sort of like outlook to to Richard Hammond.
0: Um, Double burn.
2: Right, I know. I know. (laughs) know. But, and here's the clincher here he said, but if Richard were to ever leave the show. We would really seriously like you to consider coming on the team. Fast forward nine months, right? I'm sat in front of the telly, and the news breaks, he's crashed a car at 210 miles an hour, landing on his head. And I'm thinking, I'm fucking in, right? I am in. My life is changing. I can't he survives! I- how unlucky can one man be? I mean, unbelievable. 210 miles an hour landed on his head, right? People die falling downstairs. I mean, like, how is this possible? Yeah, so I didn't get it. it no. Unbelievable. I mean, it's great for his family and stuff, but.
0: <laughs> Fuck's sake. Anyway, yeah. It's but that, that show business all the way through. It's, you know, all these close court, the, the, you know, getting that job. I've, I've, I've auditioned people where you got down to two people and you basically can't decide and it's, you know, and you'd make a decision yeah. and if you think, if that if that job had been the office and if that job had been, you know, Tim from the office, uh, <laughs> then that would be a life, you know, getting that job for Martin Freeman was, if that was up against him and another guy, that was like, imagine being that guy, you go, fuck, I could have been um, I mean Stephen
2: Merchant, Merchant and Ricky came to see me. Oh, did they? <laughs> yeah. to, in the office. Uh, what's the name of um, Mackenzie Crook's character? Gareth. Gareth, yeah. Wow. They came to see me for Gareth. Wow. And they Deep said, are you interested in doing it? And this is, and I'm not with her anymore, my agent, but I, I was the same agent for many, many years. And I phoned her out the other day, he said, um, I said, uh, Ricky Gervais and, and Stephen Merchant came to see me, do uh Edinburgh previous day, and, he, and we spent 20 minutes talking after that, but they've got a, a TV pilot, and they so the character that interested me in. I didn't know it was Gareth until after the event last. I don't think they even knew the name at that point, because they hadn't done it. And she said, Stephen, I've heard about this. <laughs> it's a fake documentary about people in an office. Who's going to want to come home from a day in the office <laughs> to watch people working in an office? Don't go anywhere near it. It's the shittest idea I've ever heard, right?
0: That was my agent.
2: <laughs> Second.
0: <laughs> it's yeah. kind of thoughtful of them to care that most agents go well let's try and get them the job it doesn't matter if it's shit at least we'll get our no 20%. no she said, she said
2: no but at that point there was no money in it at that point <laughs> they, were, they were just I, mean, I don't know if you remember but, um, but Ricky made the office by virtue of actually recording just a piece of the camera of himself talking for 10 minutes as you know in character and all the rest of it and, and then the, they took it from there and then, then there, was, there was the next step they had a bit of budget and they were going to put together a, a 15 minute kind of like him in being in an office yeah. glad I didn't get on that <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> Yeah. It would have changed your life in terrible ways. It would have been, actually, It would have been Pirates yeah, of the Caribbean. It would have yeah, been rubbish. You don't know your own forest. He owns a wood, you know, now. I mean, exactly, yeah.
2: I wouldn't be able to focus on this audience. My eyes would be too crossed from being constantly fellated. I mean, <laughs> I mean
0: it's, Yeah.
2: Think, think, think of the benefits. No, genuinely, I'm not angry about it. I mean, I, I'm, always, I'm always grateful... I was grateful for the fact that they, they kind of considered me, uh, and and same again for Top Gear as
0: well. Yeah. So you know. <laughs> well, I'm pretty angry because you know I could have had someone really properly. Thanks, Adam. Excellent, Arsehole move,
2: but excellent. Uh, excellent.
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style
0: <laughs> So um what I'm quite interested about you, I mean you are obviously doing, you would I mean you do like more stand up than most people would do just by doing your yeah. during that club. Yeah. Uh, and you, but you're also writing a lot of material, you write a lot of material for other comics, which doesn't do. get talked about very much, because people no. like to pretend it doesn't No, I, doesn't I, I made that
2: mistake earlier on, when I was talking freely about which people I wrote for, and then it's, it's, it's kind of not really the done thing. Hmm. Um, I think a lot of comics... It's just the logistics of, if you are a comedian, and you're going to do a, a, an Edinburgh show, and then you're going to do a tour, once you finish the tour, they want you to do your next tour, and it doesn't leave any time free to actually write another show. Yeah. You know, like... You know, when you get musicians, they say, oh, where have you been? Oh, I've been in the recording studio for the last five months, something like that. Well, comics can get other people to write their stuff. I mean, not write as in literally, there you go, there's a show. There's a few comedians who do that, which I mentioned. Uh, but most of them will need to be sort of, you know, hand-in-hand working with somebody. else, saying, I've got this idea. Can you develop it up and then give it back to us? So there's a, there's a fair bit of that. There's a fair bit of that for yeah. well-known comics, and there's a little bit of mentoring newer comics as well, and then sort of taking people under my wing when they're new, and then sort of like showing them the ropes in comedy and sort of getting them up to speed and stuff. And I
0: mean, it's I you know, it. it's, it's I think from your point of view, it's it, both jobs are uh, understandably great, and it's great to mentor people, especially. But it is weird that way, you know. I you know I've, I'm quite old school about it, and I if, if I'm on a panel show, I always think, well, I should be coming up with my own stuff. I almost think I shouldn't be preparing too much. I should be. Add living my own stuff in a panel oh. show, this is why i don't do many panel shows <laughs> uh, but you know you sort of, there's sort of that pride of this is my show this is you know someone might occasionally watch a show and go, How about doing the joke there? How about doing this joke? which is what all comedians would do right if you if you're doing a set and yeah. and a, a joke occurs to you, and it's in someone else's routine you go well, here's a joke but it's sort of it's, i mean it's odd that does it does that uh, does it slightly great when you see other people getting laughs at your jokes or do you or is no, it? No, I just, I, maybe it's, I'm not, I probably haven't got enough of an ego as
2: a comic, to be honest with you. I, I see someone else doing my joke and it gets a laugh, and I'm proud that it got a laugh. Um, and, I, and, and often I'm writing for somebody who is a completely different background and voice to me. So, you know, I, I will be, like, writing for, um, oh, I can't really say their names, <laughs> but, you know, well, okay, fine. But they're going to be in their early 50s and, and black and gay. <laughs> so, I, um, so, uh, you know, I'm channeling my inner mid 50s black gay man, and, yeah. um, and I'm doing jokes in their voice of things that have happened to them that not happened to me. Sure. And then, and then, and then they'll get a laugh, and I'll just think that's great, because I'll never have been able to have done that joke myself. Sometimes I'll write for somebody, and they'll say, that joke didn't work, do you want it back? Right. Okay. <laughs> and then I'll think, right, but I did it in your voice, will it work in mine? And then I realise it's quite harsh. I mean, I wrote for, um, Okay, fine, I don't think he'll mind me saying, but I wrote for Simon Brodkin for a fair bit, doing Lee Nelson, and I heard a joke about, um, you know, when he he, he got into trouble with his new wife really early on when he lost his wedding ring, uh, in another woman. Okay, and... um, (laughs) And he said to me, I tried it, it was too harsh. And I thought, well it's going to be pretty harsh for me, but then I'm quite proud of the joke. So I, <laughs> so I ended up doing it. Of course, people look at me as if to say, you monster, and they'd they have to drop it. So, so quite often, that joke won't work for me, and, I, and, and it will only work for the people I'm writing for. Sure.
0: Yeah. And you'd write, you, know, you come up with a lot of stuff, obviously, if you're comparing. So if you're comparing the, the creator, do you... Is it always different stuff? uh, Yeah, I
2: mean, there's a little bit of material that I'll be working through. But one of the reasons I've got away with not having to write for myself for so long is I'll talk to a crowd, I'll wait to see what they say, and then I'll try and come up with something off the top of my head. And I've got fairly decent sort of pub quiz knowledge. And what I mean by that is, I mean, I I know a little bit about everything. So I can usually find something on that, then I think I can turn into something and come up with a joke. But most of the time it is just trying to think about it on the fly and then come up with stuff. And I, I try to be sort of quick and sparky, but it's also for my own benefit. Otherwise, I get bored. Sure. You know, if I was doing the same jokes four or five times every week in the same venue that I just <laughs> drive down the road to, then it would be a job, yeah. you know. And, um, I mean, I'm looking at you guys, and you've got jobs, and I'd hate to be like you. I mean, <laughs> just so, I mean how do you live? How do you live? It's disgusting, isn't it? And,
0: and most of them do IT as well, so It's I mean, even I mean, worse. I know, I know. It's even worse. <laughs>
2: That's my background. It's a year two thousand consultant, amazing job. Work dried up nineteen years ago, but up until then, pretty fucking busy.
0: So. Um, I you know, I don't think it's. It, I suppose you know I write scripts that are for other people. Like, you know when you write sitcoms or whatever. So it's not, and I, I get it, mm. but you just you know it's sort of it's sort of weird to think that there's this it, often like you know I know a few comedians who do this, and you think. You know, you're a really great comedian. It's your it's turn. It's, it's
2: your... time. It's not ability. It's time. Yeah. They just don't have the time. Yeah, yeah. They go, I'll get an email from somebody, and it'll be a page of ideas. I've got some stuff on this. Can you work this into material? And then I'll just send it back a day later. And sure. they go, great. Cheers.
0: Yeah, but then why don't they do a bit less, you know, and let someone else have a go? There's so many people on TV who are in everything, and you kind of yeah. go, just fucking, you've got enough money, you've got enough exposure. Let some other cunt have a crack. <laughs> Stephen Grant, he's a cunt. Yeah, have um, a crack. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you know what the weird thing is about it is? Is is that
2: is if they were to do that, I'd end up with less work, not more. So, because currently I'm writing for the people who want more money, uh, <laughs> rather than them handing over the work to people like me who could do the job. So, as it stands right now, if they can continue to be quite so greedy, that would be amazing. So, um, yeah, it's just the nature of the beast, I think. I, I, uh, I, I know that ten years ago, the idea of having another comic writing for a comic was weird but you know, it's just the norm now
0: i think it is i mean i'm sort of old school and you know my old schoolness kind of blurs every now and again and i decide i've got to move into the modern world but that that one just feel it just feels like you should be to me it's still especially with like i'm not so much like a panel show and like gags mm. and a panel show but like if you're writing an edinburgh show or a show you're going to tour it, sh- it feels like that no, I should mean, be
2: coming from I, this is this 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 new phenomenon comedy called the director um, yeah. You know, I know directors exist in all forms of entertainment and have done for many years previously. But the idea is now that, you know, if you go out to Edinburgh, you have an, a director. And what ty- typically is, is a comic who knows Edinburgh quite well, who watches over your show and just tells you what mistakes to not make. Yeah. And it doesn't change the content or the dialogue or anything. And that's the thing. I mean, there was that, I was talking to you just before we came on about the, uh, the BBC Radio Music Awards, and I worked on... Jeff Norcott's show, which was uh, right-leaning, uh, right well-meaning, and uh, which got turned into a Radio Four one-off, which won the comedy award this year. So, and, and Jeff phoned me up three days before, and going, "Look, I think they've included me because they just wanted to show that there's some diversity involved." because he's right-wing, which is about as diverse as you'll get on Radio 4, okay? And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and all I did was take his story and add jokes into it. So it was, it was what happened in his life. I'm not about to say, hey, could you say this thing happened in your life instead, because it's an Edinburgh of <laughs> a show. So just to try and make it funny and change the order of the words and stuff and make it just that little bit punchier. And then he was so sure he wouldn't win, he went off and did a gig. And he sort of left us there, and then he won. And I went up to collect it with two other people who worked on the show who I'd never met before, okay? Because <laughs> all I did was actually write. I never got involved with the recording. And, um, and you know, it, was, it didn't feel like we'd cheated, but it was really weird because we were collecting the award for his comedy show that was autobiographical. Yeah, so it was like kind of like you know like you know we've really enjoyed working on this show and by that I mean basically sitting next to the bloke whose life that we've collected the award for. So
0: yeah, and you know maybe it's because like Morecambe and Wise never really wrote their own stuff. I think they might have written some of their stage stuff and. You know that, that's the thing. So you're thinking it's an old school thing, but maybe it's a very '80s and '90s thing where people will suddenly. Uh...
2: I, I guess the point I was trying to make is you, you can still have a comedy show come from the heart and be very personal to you, course, and yeah. have somebody else work. Yeah, yeah. No, you no. know, um, and and every comic to some extent does that anyway. When you go off and do a preview, you know, to 12 people in June before you go up to Edinburgh, and then one of your comic mates comes along just to add numbers, and then sits down after you the pint, going, "Oh, you should change that bit. You should change that bit." The difference is, is they're doing it for a, a day, and you're paying them. Yeah. I mean, it's just the same
0: thing. It's just a bit more effort. Good. All right. Well, um, you're wrong. Uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> You've taught me around. Um,
2: <laughs> I, never, I never got, anyone, to, I never got any, anyone, anyone to help on any of the shows that I wrote, ever. No. Uh, all, all of those were completely myself, uh, because I am tight. <laughs> and so therefore I wouldn't pay someone else to do it and, but I also agree with you to some extent but while other people are willing to pay someone to do it I'll take the work
0: no, I, 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 I understand right. I understood all along <laughs> I was just playing devil's I was playing devil's avocado yeah sure um, <laughs> let's talk about your uh, t- horrific we had Angela Barnes on uh, last week who burnt herself with the hot water bottle Yep. And you've also badly hurt your chest area. I uh, have badly hurt my chest area. Thank you. <laughs> I, uh,
2: did um, did Angela? I mean, obviously it's a podcast, but it was it's been recorded live as well. Did Angela get her her injury? She got out? everything
0: out. She, she showed us the lot. Did she? All around the nipples, the Nike thing around the nipples. Wow. Everything. Right. Should have come to the first one, mate. It was amazing. Because <laughs> he's about to get his out now, and you're going to regret coming to see this. Actually, no, mate. It's Brighton. It's going to be great. Am I right? Okay. Because yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's great when you disappoint yourself. Yeah. Tell, us, tell us what happened. <laughs> Help me.
2: I was cycling to a gig. Uh, I decided... Uh, I've well, been gigging with a friend there and I gave her... A, I was seeing her two three days earlier and so said, i can give you a bag of clothes that I can wear for the gig and I'm going to cycle to a gig and uh, I'll kind of throw my bike in your car afterwards and go back afterwards because I fancy it's a summer day. It's, it's, you know, it's 55 miles, which is a nice distance to bike ride. And then she said, fine, yeah, whatever, and I'll see you there. And then I was cycling to the gig, and <clears throat> when I drive to a gig, I have a habit of spending the, the last 30 minutes before driving there. And I'm, Most comics with the same, just going through in your head a little bit what you're going to say, um, which is perfectly acceptable to do in a car. But on a bicycle, you need a slightly more concentration. <laughs> and so while I was just basically muttering to myself under my breath what jokes I was going to be doing um, and going through the trees... Well, not through, literally for the trees, but going down the road next to the trees. The shadows hid loads of potholes that I didn't notice. And then my front wheel disappeared into a pothole. I was going fairly fast, about sort of, nearly 20 miles an hour on the bike. And um, the back of it just trebucheted me over into the ground. And I hit the tarmac really hard, um, all of it on my shoulder. And uh, I remember little... It's a bit patchy because I came in and out of consciousness. The first thing I did was stop Strava because I don't want to reduce your average speed. Um, LAUGHTER you want to be going fast when you crash, otherwise you look a pussy. I, uh, <laughs> second thing I did is I actually took a selfie with my good working arm um, because the likes were off the scale, Richard. And, um, and then I dragged myself off to the side of the road. Uh, then I think passed out. Then when I came to, a cyclist was coming the other way, and the driver who was behind me had stopped. And they were sort of checking on me, and they collected all the bits of my bike that sort of like sort of fell off the road. Um, and they was on the phone to the uh, ambulance man you know, or the nine oh nine or whatever, and they were they were describing me. So they had my phone, and they were describing me to the person, the dispatcher, and they were going, yep, that's blue. Yep, that's blue. No, that's blue as well. It was pretty much all blue. And they looked at me, they realised I'd woken up, and they went, oh, they'll be here really soon, and handed me the phone. And then I kind of, like, dipped out again. And when I came to, uh, I was basically woken up by a helicopter air ambulance landing in the field next to me which was very bittersweet because at that point I was just sort of feeling just a bit confused and there was that dawn, well, it was bittersweet because there was a little bit and that went, oh, fuck, I might die. But there was another part that went, well, I've never been in a helicopter before, <laughs> so, you know, it could be a fun day. And um, they landed and they ran out and they sort of checked over me and what I didn't realise is they were checking for shock. They were worried about shock because shock is apparently the biggest killer in a road accident, but I wasn't in enough shock to get in an air ambulance. So they fucked off. And they just <laughs> left me there waiting for a normal ambulance, right? Which feels like, feels like an Uber by comparison. And if I'd known that, I would have feigned astonishment. And I'd be like, how is he? He's just so surprised. We put him in the chopper. And then they disappeared off. And then, and then the normal ambulance came up. and It was quite funny. They put me in the ambulance. And they put my bike at the foot of the little bed that you lie in the ambulance. And they had a strap that went round it. And I went, oh, that's useful. You, you, you can use a strap to put the bicycle in. And they went, yeah, we, we get a lot of bicycles in here. No. I went, oh, yeah, that, that might happen then. Um, and then they, they drove me to Worthing uh, General Hospital, which, I mean, it's just... I mean, I, I, as soon as they wheeled me in, I brought the average age down by 20. And it was, you know, surrounded by people who'd had a fall. And I... Um, filled me with... I mean, you know, painkillers. It's so weird, isn't it? You know, I always hear about celebrities going... Oh, I'm addicted to painkillers. And you think, I'll oh, get a proper dealer. And um, But like, I'd never had proper, decent painkillers before. They're, they're, have you ever had, like... No, no. They're incredible. <laughs> they're incredible. I can understand. The only reason why we don't all go and take painkillers for fun is because there isn't a drug culture to go with it. If you think about it, if you smoke dope, you you go to, like, an open-air festival, if you take coke, you know, you'll go to, you know, a, a, the races, or, you know, or just... A business meeting or something, I don't know. know. Heroin, you're gonna be in a den somewhere. Your ecstasy, you go to a rave. There's no drug culture to go with strong painkillers, is there? It's not like, kind of like, oh, come around mine, we're gonna watch Only Connect. It's really tricky, but I'll never get a headache. You know, that, that was like, kind of like, hey, I'm on codeine, I'm going for a poo, hold my hand. You know, I mean, there's, there's nothing, there's no drug culture with it. So I was on these painkillers and they're incredible. And then they, they x rayed me eventually and it uh, broke in, it, it, basically uh, broken it in 11 places my collarbone. It, um, I'd knocked my entire shoulder into my rib cage, And they were saying it's quite, cycling's a good way to get thin. And they're right, because I, I, I was two inches thinner in seconds. And <laughs> They pulled the thing back out and they said, well, look, the NHS don't really ever bother with uh, collarbones. They don't do anything. We wait to see how it heals. And they showed me the x-ray and it looked like a potato waffle. It was just all in different directions. So in the end, I had to get someone else to kind of strap it all up. And then, so I've got a, a metal... Uh, plate that starts my neck and goes all the way down to my shoulder, which holds it all together, which I'm going to do my best to show people. I don't know if you're squeamish, not a good time to look. I'm doing do my best. Very
0: squeamish. I'm oh, like you, oh. Yeah, I'm quite squeamish, but I'm more about blood and stuff. It's not well, still, no, there's no blood. It's, it's not still no bleeding. No, 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 there's no blood. <laughs>
2: and then, uh, and so I got, uh, it, it was, it really stands out, and I got fed up telling people how I did it. So what I did is I got a tattoo put over it to explain the actual accident. So... Um, <laughs> So that's for the benefit of all of you. That is a diagram of me coming off my bicycle, going down my shoulder. So, and that's the rule now. Uh, that's my first ever tattoo, and I got that in my early 40s. So any other tattoo will have to be to explain the injury that it's next to, um, which was a little bit worried because two months later, I burnt my head really badly taking a frittata out the oven, which I thought <laughs> genuinely concerned I was going to have to get some kind of kitchen tattoo.
0: Um
2: but yeah, no, it was that kind of moment of like, oh, crumbs, I might die. And then I had to have like about six months of physio to get all the movement back in my arm. And, um, and six months of going to, you know, do exercises every day kind of changed my life. And I kind of, so I've, so I've, you know, I mean, that's the thing. I've lost about a stone and a half, and, you know, I've got like loads fitter and healthier, and I feel great. And I appreciate if we were doing this podcast in America right now, you guys wouldn't be able to stop fucking clapping. But I, <laughs> um, <laughs> But this is Britain, you see someone a little bit thin and you sit there and you think, oh dear, probably stress. <laughs> I, um, in fact, actually, I'm in my early 40s. I bump into people that I haven't seen for a year and they've seen the fact that I'm loads thinner and they just go, thyroid? <laughs> I mean, like, it's like, you know, in your, in your 30s, if you lose weight, everyone goes, well done. Now they all think I'm dying. Right? <laughs> yeah,
0: anyway, so that's, that was... Uh, that I've was lost there. a stone and three quarters just by stopping eating chocolate and drinking, so you don't have to fall really off a bike. Yeah. Now they're talking about... <laughs> No, Anyone can have an accident, mate.
2: <laughs> um, so, uh, oh, all right, well done. Is that what it sounds like? Richard Herring, less sugar, total prohibition. Oh, okay. <laughs> it. Not bad. Off the top my head. There we go. Get fat for that. Fucking tough crowd. Anyway, um, so... Did you just choose to just block that out altogether?
0: Yeah, well I just you know I was I was pretty the secret to losing weight is get really fat first. Yeah, it is. So, right. like uh,
2: do you have a pair of original trousers you've held onto that you can take you can put
0: it's on It's only from 2 months ago. So yeah, it's only 3 months. <laughs> so yeah, I still got I still wear and wear I can I can get into some of my old clothes. I can't quite get into the I did wear my uh the suit. I was thin. I was thin about five years ago, and then I had kids. So, is the suit really recent? This, this is seven years old. This, this is when I got married. So, I was fat. I was fatter than I was when I got thinner. All right. But this is this I'm, is on the way back. I'm to... about the same eight weight as I was when I got married now. Right. But five years ago, which is. You know, after yeah. I got R- married, R- I, I, I got I went down to. So you've uh, lost your baby weight then? Yeah, I, okay, I, then. I've got I've got I'm about halfway back to where I was at, at the best.
2: So I, um, as we all do as comics, every now and again we have to get suits made if we're going to do corporate work or appear on TV and stuff like that and you're always told, oh, go and get one tailored for you. Um, And I spent many, many years working uh, on Radio 1 for writing, doing comedy, and they used to give me free record bags because, like, the record companies would give loads of freebies to the DJs but they wouldn't bother with. So they had a box by the door that if you worked at Radio 1, you could help yourself to it. So record bags, typically, sort of fairly large satchels, and I always have them because I'm right-handed over my left shoulder. So five years of having all my stuff on my left shoulder and this shoulder dropped, dropped and dropped and when I got my suit made up the guy said to me do you realise your left shoulder nearly an inch and a half lower than your right I said no wow. no, I didn't so they made the suit up so it kind of corrected it and looked great but after I had my surgery for my collarbone what I didn't realise is while I was under the surgeon fucking corrected it okay right <laughs> So I'm now symmetrical again. And I went to, and this literally about two months later, I went to put the suit on to go and do a show. And I went, fuck, it doesn't fit. What's going on? It doesn't fit correctly, nor the rest of it. And I was having a, con- I met meet with the consultant. I went, did you correct me? He went, yeah. I thought it got knocked down as a result of the accident." No, that was years of getting it in the right place. So I had
0: to chuck it away. I had, to, I had a really decent suit. I thought you say that I had to get him to stamp on my shoulder a bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you fuck the other shoulder, please? These, these suits cost three grand each. I'm not... Yeah,
2: throwing things I know, away. I know, I Had to it. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, when you lose a load of weight, you get rid of... That's the thing. Um, you, you'll see sort of people, and I don't want to say women are much more sort of triumphalist about it, going, oh, it's great, you'll get a new wardrobe. You're a bloke, you like your clothes. i gutted. <laughs> I'm looking at all these great clothes sort of thinking, can I so can I just shrink them? Can I put them in a 90 degree wash and hope yeah. they get smaller or something? It's, yeah, it's rubbish.
0: So the accident hasn't put you off cycling though?
2: No, no. It's, I'm really addicted. Uh, I, 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 that's the thing. I kind of got into cycling. As a way of getting fit. Um, well, actually, the honest truth was it was because uh, I was trying for a baby for quite a while. And uh, this is my late 30s. And I'd left it a little bit late. It's that classic middle class thing of the middle class people tend to... You know, when people talk about infertility. It's almost entirely a middle class issue because working class people have children much earlier in life. Whereas middle class people more like to travel or, you know, or study or work on their businesses or getting a sound financial footing. And that's how IVF works, by the way, is it knows you've built up a fair amount of money over the last few years, <laughs> comes along and slowly claws it all away from you until eventually you've got nothing left. You're effectively working class and then conceive naturally. But I... Um, <laughs> um, um, uh, how did the doctors do it? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and and when I was... We were trying for a baby, me and, and wife number two, and we... We were, it wasn't kind of working. And they said, look, the, the best thing to do for a bloke is to, is to exercise. Keep your blood oxygen levels high, you know. And um, I thought, right, okay, fine, good. That's what I'm going to do. And, 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 and I tried running and it really hurt my knees. And I tried swimming and I realised like, I, I last swam when I was 15. And I'm useless at it. And I thought cycling, that would be a good way to do it. And, um, I mean, it's one of the jokes I talk about on stage. It's not strictly true. But actually there was a, an urban myth that if you cycle loads, um, being on a bike saddle can kill up to 50% of your sperm which was my my go-to joke there, is I needed this information when I was in my early 20s having sex with women for fun. (laughs) Fabulous. (laughs) They're going, oh, Stephen, don't let go of me. And like I said, don't worry, love. I cycled here, you know? I mean, (laughs) um, I don't think it's an acceptable form of contraception, but I... uh, (laughs) But yeah, I started cycling in order to get fit, in order to make babies, and um, and then it kept going, and then and then once I had the accident, I did loads of gym work to try and get the movement back, and so I, I stuck with it, and yeah. But I, I, I love it. It's uh, it's weird. It's uh, today I went out um, an hour two and a quarter hours, and just over I went over the, uh, the South Downs four times, just up the top, down, back again four times, and you know, and a lot of people go, that's mental. Why would you do that? And I because at the end of it you feel good, partly because it's over. <laughs> I, um, but also because, I and mean, people say endorphins. But here's the weird thing, right? There's there's two sides of endorphins. You get the real kind of the Instagram type people are going, "Oh, it's incredible! I've done exercise, I feel amazing." But actually, uh, and you'll know this, a lot of comics, I want say, struggle with demons or something like that. But the problem about having a job where you've got a large chunk of the day free is you've got a lot of time to think about why your life is so pointless. And um, <laughs> and uh, what cycling does is it allows those sort of slightly darker thoughts. To sort of like sit a little further away from your thought processes, um, it, you know. For a lot of people, exercise is about feeling good, and for me, it's about not feeling bad. And I, I have felt the least glum and miserable since exercising ever. But it's not really an ex- it's not really an advert, isn't it? Hey, want to kill yourself? Want to you go on your bike? Because after two years, you'll be slightly diminished in those feelings, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> But it's but yeah I mean the endorphins work in two different ways. One of them is to feel good, but more importantly, it's the one to not feel bad, and that's absolutely why I do it.
0: Sure, and you're doing you've got a cycling podcast, which is not exactly for the. It's not a crossover podcast, I wouldn't say. As a non-cyclist, it was a little bit hard to. Yeah, get. I
2: apologise. Some of them will be a little bit technical. I do it with a girl called Raya Hubble. She's a, a triathlete and an Ironman athlete, and it's quite good because obviously sometimes you've got a male-female podcast. And the voices, and they're thinking, oh, is one of them just an auxiliary voice? But actually, she's the proper athlete. She's the one who trains. She's got, like, a coach. She's, uh, you know, she came second in the European Aquabite. But she's, she's mad, and she's funny, and she's a laugh. And so the two of us have been mates for ages, and I suggested what well, we should do a podcast about cycling. But I'm the enthusiast, and she's the athlete. But we do do podcast episodes that, if you ever look at it, it's called The Cyclist Pod, where it is just for everybody, like, like how to get into cycling. And also we do an episode, I think it's episode 25, which is just called Sex, 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 which is basically deals with are cyclists better or worse lovers. And um, You have to listen to it, but it's pretty <laughs> offensive, to be honest with you. I, uh, uh, but, it's, but it's funny. And the thing is, that we found that cycling is hugely popular, but it's very dry. People take it very seriously. And I wanted to just add a bit more of a laugh to it. Um, and that, I, think, I think comics, I mean, your podcast is brilliant, but all comics who do a podcast tend to be quite good at it. Because they're just naturally funny, and when a comic talks about something they really know a lot about, like Jim Smallman talking about wrestling, you know, or even um, like Alistair Beckett King talking about laws and you know L O R E S, there's instead of actual laws. Though though um, there is another um, one as well. Uh, there's another comic, a Northwest comic, who does one about actually quirks of the legal system. When a comic has got a, a knowledge about something really specific, but does and then talks about it in a funny way. It's, you know, it's as it's closest as you'll get to Edinburgh without being in Edinburgh, yeah. to find a subject. Because every comic goes on stage and does things that they want the audience to hear. And that's why Edinburgh is so popular, because it's an, a, a month of them going, no, I'm going to talk about what I want to fucking talk about. Um, and typically, it will be something that they're quite anal about, and that's why podcasts are great, because you get to vent that off for the rest of the year. Well, it's, the, it's, cycle. it's
0: the autonomy. I think stand-up really has that. And a lot of stand-ups are, are like, so, so autonomous they can barely work with other people as well. So some, mm. I think... Some comedians it wouldn't work for. But it is that, you know, the beauty of a podcast is you can do whatever you want. And I, we just briefly said this backstage. But, um, you know, with a, cycling, with a cycling show, if you went to the BBC said, I want to do a cycling show mm. that's going to go out every week. And, you know, people, they go, well, it's probably too niche. But actually, as a, as a podcast, it's perfect because you've got the whole world as your audience and every cyclist will yes. listen to it. So it's... it's yeah, well,
2: I mean, what's, what's weird about it is there is cycling shows that do go out on the BBC. There's one called... Um, um, it's, uh, there's, there's quite a few, actually. But but they're all about the pro world, about what's happening in the Tour de yeah, France and yeah. stuff like that. And we're talking, we're talking about having a laugh on a bike. We're talking about, yes, going as fast as you can and doing events and things like that, but having a laugh. It's got to be fun first and competitive. Well, not second, like fifth, sixth or seventh or something like that. And so that was our, our niche, was for the enthusiast rather than the kind of the, the sporting fan. But... Um, yeah, it'll all change. It will all change. I mean, podcasts are to radio what Netflix is to television. It's just where the future will be. Yeah. And, you know, you guys know what you like and then you're listening to the thing you like. And as for comics being autonomous, it's perfect, isn't it? Because we get to choose what we say. We choose what goes out. I mean, not all of us are quite so control-driven that afterwards we're selling our own merchandise to people <laughs> in, the, in, in the lobby. I mean, that would be just taking it too far. Most of us would have someone else do that for us. But, you know, it's... <laughs> But you know, I mean, like we don't have to control every part of the process. I mean, but... you would
0: have to pay them, though, right? And then that cuts into your overheads.
2: Oh, good point. Oh, yeah. right, okay, fair enough. Good point. I hadn't thought about that. I am tight. Yeah, you're right.
0: <laughs> Me too. Um, <laughs> but that's you know, it is that's that's the that's the, uh, the the thing about it. I suppose is that like a lot of TV is you know it's someone else coming up with ideas and then trying to find the person to put it in, and the comedian just comes up with the is his own you know is his own business or her own business doesn't need. That other person. So in a way, that gatekeeper is, is, is dilutes things. Some, it, sometimes it works. though. I'm not saying it never works, but a lot of the time, it's get it's you get someone who isn't that creative deciding what the show will be, and putting someone who, if you'd said to them, "You write this, come up with an idea for a show and put it on for me," it would be a better show, I think. Yeah. My, my worry is though, is because I mean,
2: the the more successful podcast and yours is really established. Is obviously you've got advertisers, and and you're. I worry that you'd have to actually control what you say because it would upset an advertiser. Like We've already on our cycling podcast lost an advertiser who listened to the show and said they were worried we were too rude. And, and they are a well-known bicycle cleaning company who, who, whose actual kind of catchphrase is filth. Okay, right, and they have T-shirts with the word filth written on it, and they said we were too dirty. <laughs> right? And I just thought we were a marriage made in heaven, you know, but, but I always think that the, the, the price you pay for doing whatever you want and saying whatever you want is commercially you are going to be less successful.
0: Yeah, but it doesn't, you know, but I think it, it's true, I, and, but I th- and, I, and I think that is the problem that podcasting is now becoming mainstream and that yeah, that my, what I loved about it was you could do whatever you wanted. And that's what actually was the appealing thing to me in the first place. I didn't care about... Everyone else said, but you're not making any money. What are you doing? You're not making any money. And I, I said, I literally don't care mm. about making money. I'm doing what... I'm putting the stuff out that I want to put out, and that's all I care about. But I think that's... For me, that's it. If anyone comes and says, you know, we, you can't do exactly what you want in this podcast if you, if we're doing a little yeah. advert in it, then i say, well, okay, we, want to, we don't want the advert.
2: No, I think it's brilliant. I think it's great as well because you get a little tap into people's brains and see what's chugging around as well. And it's, it's odd as well because, you know, quite a lot of being a comic, people think, oh, are you really funny on stage? And then you must be, like, really quiet and dark, the rest of it. But with a podcast, you're talking a lot. <laughs> it's a lot, isn't it, as well? So you're kind of like having to be funny a lot of the day. Yeah. And um, it's, it's nice. It's a release. I, I kind of, the, the idea of being funny in a room on my own, or with with just or with another person, the host. Without, I mean, you guys have got an audience here as well. It's weird for me. I mean, I tell you what's really weird as well is I've only done one live version of my cyclist podcast, uh, and I was petrified because I was going to meet the people who listened to it. And I thought I've been nicely shielded from those people for yeah. years. What if they're like like properly? fucking mental, yeah. like, you know, like, off the scale, like, because then, you see, as soon as you see, like, you, you've done loads of live shows, yeah. you know what your audience looks like,
0: so when you're recording it not live, do you ever... Doesn't, do... doesn't make me any happier though, Steve, you are <laughs> <laughs> just describing my life here. <laughs> do you ever do any non-live podcasts, are they all live now? Uh, I used to, but th- these, this, this one is always, I do, oh. um, I do, uh, stone clearing, that's nice, <laughs> play myself a snooker, that doesn't usually have an audience... Can you close, do you close your eyes when doing it and you can see
2: the people at home or in their cars or walking? I
0: try because not to f- think about them for those podcasts. <laughs> I, I, really, I really fear for who those people are. No, um, no, no, no but it somebody, you know, it's that thing when someone comes up to you and goes, I'm listening to you now! <laughs> that's, a, that's, the, that's the sort of weird, uh, the weird element.
2: <laughs> well, I, um, the, the problem I've got with so many people having seen me in Brighton is that for some reason the comedian is really popular with first dates. Right. And I get loads of people saying, I went on my first date to Comedia and we're now getting married so we thought it would be brilliant if you could come along and do some jokes at the wedding. And you've always got to explain to people why it's a slightly different environment to a <laughs> comedy club. And I always go, are they going to be sat? No. Are there any old people? Yes. Are there any children? Yes. Am I coming on after speeches in which people say how great love is? Yes. Well, there are five reasons <laughs> why it will not work. And, and the only times I've ever done it is when they've thrown so much money at me and I've gone, right, I'll ruin your big day. You fucking pay for it. Because comedy, if I have a bad gig, it's a bad day at the office. But if you ruin someone's wedding, yeah. you ruined the be- worst, biggest day of their life. But I know loads of comics who will happily do it, who will absolutely stink the place out, grab the money in a lovely crocheted envelope, say thank you and fuck off out of the venue. <laughs> Astonishing. But yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, it's like you say that you meet, I get people coming up to me Telling me about their stories about when they were at Comedia because, and you know what, the worst one is, and this is, you're gonna like this, this is a comics joke, is I had people come up to me after a gig and they go, Oh, Stephen, really enjoyed the show. It's great to see you're still here, right? Because I used to come here when I was a student. And like 10 years ago, and you were the compere now, and it's good to see you, because I've always loved your stuff, even when I was a student. I go, what do you do now? And they go, oh, right, well, I'm managing director of my own digital marketing. So <laughs> we've like got 18 offices, four of them in LA and stuff like that. Yeah, I just, uh, you should come up and visit us. We've got a farm out in sort of West Sussex. Well, some of it's in West Sussex, some of it's in Surrey. And, uh, and you think, then you just think, right, so while I've been plugging out the same stuff... You have gone from student to literally world authority, you yeah. know. And, and there, that's the thing, isn't it? And they always turn to me and they just go, why aren't you on the telly? And I just go, because Richard Hammond lived.
0: <laughs> um... Hey, we're, we're, we're approaching the end of the podcast. Oh, right. But, you know, we fuck that. Fuck time. <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do another three minutes. Um... LAUGHTER I haven't done any emergency quite. We did some backstage for the... Uh, if you're a badger, you can... Or a bit of drip, so you can watch the uh, backstage videos I do with it. Pretty much everyone, right. Uh But so we'll do a few. I'll do... Again, I did some early ones in the... In the just because we're on tour. Uh, these people, you know, have never seen me ask these questions live. <laughs> and i so excited. You won't believe. Um, uh, would you rather have a tip that dispenses talcum powder? This is a well-known one, isn't yeah? it? No, they're just mentally ill. (laughs) I just just tapped in to Brighton's sexual... (laughs) kink there. Mm -hmm. Hey, that's what I like! (laughs) How did you know? Or, a finger that can travel through time. So you've got a nipple. Not attached to the rest of you? Uh, It will be attached to you, but only the the finger can travel, so there would be a wormhole you'd push your finger through, and then... Your finger would, from your... You could probably just peek around and see what's going on, to give you... um, Your finger's in the past or the future. Right. Um, (laughs) But you're still here, you're still here. (laughs) i kind of feeling
2: this hasn't been thought.
0: I know, I've thought through, I just drifted off for a second. I haven't done this question for a while, this is a golden oldie. So you could poke someone or or flick something, but you couldn't do much more. You could play Sabutio against someone. You could really ruin someone's Sabutio game. I've gone
2: through to the 70s. Um, right. Uh, uh,
0: but you could go anywhere, in the past or the future. Push the very heavy buttons it. on a transistor radio. Yeah.
2: Right, okay. You know,
0: right. Poke someone.
2: I, I, I think the the fingers, I, I, the idea of time travel is brilliant, but if it's only down to my finger, I feel like I'm not getting the full
0: effect. Well, you know, would you want it or not? I think it's Is it's your finger or nothing? I think
2: a. Uh, No, I I think from the point of view of Party Trick, the tit that can dispense talcum powder. Yeah? Yeah, because the thing is, it's both actually useful and also memorable. is true. Because people would go, like, have you met Stephen Grant? Oh, what? Stephen Future Finger Grant? (laughs) No. Have you met Stephen Grant? What, Stephen Tit Talcum Grant? Yes. All right, I think it's just got a little bit more panache.
0: Okay. So, Tit Talcum. I think you might be the first person to ever... (laughs) Um, this, is, this is for a comedian. This is probably a, Go a, a good question. What is the worst experience you've ever had in a hotel? Okay. there must be a lot. As soon as Oops. I thought
2: that, I'm thinking about Michael Fabry's one, which is one of the best ones in the of the stories in the world. I mean, he, anyway, I'll yeah, get him on. I'll get him. On. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, it, we're not censored, are we?
0: No, you can say anything you
2: want. Okay. So I'm staying in an incredibly cheap hotel in Norfolk, okay, uh, back in my previous job. And um, it's one of those ones where they, there's a restaurant, but I get a free meal with it because I'm paid for by a client because it was back in my engineering days. And I ordered something with prawns. And that was the last time I ate prawns, as you're about to find out why. <laughs> and, and I remember when the food was ready because you could hear the ping from the microwave when you were uh, there. And they gave it to me, and I got some of the worst... Diarrhea I've ever had in my life, to the point where I couldn't make it from the hotel bed to the actual ensuite. Yeah. So I just destroyed everything: bedding, <laughs> carpets, uh, the actual, the, the, the main toilet, the shower, and all the rest of it. And I was supposed to be working eight o'clock the following morning, and I was like, it's four in the morning, and I basically was. It was like the ending from *Slumdog Millionaire*. It was like I mean, it was just. It was just a thing of horror. And I remember thinking, well, I mean, how do you I mean, pick up the phone and say, I'm sorry, I've heavily shat the entire room. Um, uh, it is now uninhabitable, and I now need to die, please. But I was so ill, I couldn't do anything, so I phoned up and I said, I need a doctor, uh, so they could get a doctor in. And they said, well, can we come in and check in you? I went, no, you can't. And, so, and they said, the doctor can't get you till 2 o'clock. And I didn't have any food or anything, so I just basically drank water out of the tap and shat myself. <laughs> for 12 hours and when the doctor came in the doctor said I can't see you in here it's too horrible and, and, and I went you've got I to literally can't what... see you I can't <laughs>
0: see
2: you <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I said look you've got to because by then I was a bit better uh, but I would no opportunity to clean anything up. And, um, yeah, I've, got, I've taken your question quite literally, haven't I? Yeah. I um, a lot right. of people have a funny story about bringing no, a girl back good. and it's all a bit good. weird and it turns <laughs> out they're related. And, oh, what shall I do? Uh, no, no, I just, I, I mean, I, uh, I think the worst thing that happened was, is that I tried to clean everything as best oh. as I could. And I rolled up the, the, the bedding and everything like that, and just into into bag, and I asked them to give me some plastic bags and stuff, and said it was like obviously I had a few accidents and stuff. And I was in my late twenties then, and it was, yeah, I mean, like, it was awful. I mean, it's just so bad. Um, I mean, it was their prawns, their fucking fault, anyway. And, and then I rolled everything up, and I realised uh, my keys and the television remote control <laughs> were in the roll of the duvet, and I was going to have to dig it back out again, and I. I genuinely phoned the RAC to find out how much replacement keys, are, <laughs> rather than dive through my own uh, sort of feces to get the keys. Wow. Out. Yeah. Do you know what I've told virtually nobody? What is it about? I've, do you know, there are. I don't think either wife two or one know that story. <laughs> to be fair, that's that's trying to keep them. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was probably my worst ever story. as Yeah, well. that's yeah.
0: pretty bad. Yeah.
2: We can't rescue this, can we? I,
0: uh, yeah, yeah. I'll ask another question, see if we can... Uh, Bring you it know, up. I'm very tempted to end the podcast. <laughs> I'm, in fact, just delete the rest of the podcast and just put that out. <laughs> without me even asking the question, I'm going to put... Uh, i use a different question. You <laughs> go, wait, why is, are you telling me this? What is wrong with you? I didn't ask that. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be hard to beat. Does anyone want to share a hotel room with me? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God, everything just seems awful now. Um, all right, I'll ask you question 714 if you're following at home. I mean, you know, it's pointless asking, but here we go. Have you ever suckled on the ducks of a barren old woman? The dugs. The ducks. The Dugs. Oh, the Dugs. The Dugs is the sort of dugs. Shakespearean word for, yeah, a, a, and I a, a believe in Shakespearean times, uh, the, the sort of barren uh, women would sometimes suckle children with their ancient ducks. <laughs> I believe. <laughs> I think I might just have made that up, but define old. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do. Look, it's been lovely. What have you got? Have you got uh, stuff coming up? Are you going to be doing? Well, it'd be lovely if
2: people had to go at the Cyclist pod podcast. Even if you're not a cyclist, there are episodes that you can enjoy. So have a look at episode uh, 25. There's also one called "Running as Shit," uh, which which we just basically put the boot in on running. So if you don't enjoy cycling and you don't enjoy running, you'll enjoy that. Um, And uh, other than that, then no. I mean, realistically, I'm just doing my comedy and doing my stand-up. And if you want to hear my jokes, they're being done by. Much more successful comics on <laughs> tour uh, um, right now. But no, genuinely, uh, that's, uh, we, you know, uh, just follow us on Twitter, I suppose. Yeah. You know, do people still, is, it, is that a dying medium? Is it dead by the time I it I think goes it's okay. Out? Twitter's doing okay. It's all right, okay. You yeah. can follow me on Instagram as well. I'm face tuned it to fuck. I look 28. I, um, <laughs> but no, I, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, Listen to the Cycling podcast and follow us on Twitter and
0: maybe Instagram. Well, thanks so much. I've been trying to get you on for a long time, Stephen, and it's yeah. fantastic to do it in your hometown of many generations of Grants. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Grant, is one of yours. Thank you very much.